been an unbelievably busy week. It's the busiest I've been all year. And I'm in the middle of making a record, and it's coming along beautifully, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. But I also take off next week and go on tour. I'll be touring for 22 days in the UK and Ireland. But if you live in that area, I would love for you guys to come out to the show. It'd be great to be able to see you. You know, I don't always get to meet the people who listen to this show, but it's always really fun when I do. It brings it all home and makes it personal. So uh, you can go to OtisGibbs.com and find all the tour dates. Just come on up and say hi and say you listen to the show. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my home in East Nashville, Tennessee. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Grant Showbiz. Grant's a producer, he's a sound engineer, and he's one of the nicest guys you ever want to meet. I first met Grant when I was touring with Billy Bragg, and he was uh, doing the sound for Billy. He's an old friend of Billy's. And some of my fondest memories are just sitting in the van, just listening to Grant tell stories about the Smiths and uh, you know Johnny Marr and Morrissey, and hearing those stories about them touring the USA back when. I caught up with Grant while he was in Nashville and went over to his hotel room. And Grant is an extremely animated person. He's really fun to be around. He's always, he doesn't do anything halfway. He's always all in. So when he's telling these stories, he's nowhere near the microphone sometimes. He's kind of would stand up, arms flailing in the air and kicking and all of that. And uh, just all in. So I wanted to set that tone. I think the sound sounds great, but uh, I just want you guys to know that. He gave me so much fun stuff, so many good stories, that I went ahead and turned this into a two-parter. So here's part one of Grant Showbiz. Right, I'm um, I'm from what was called a new town, which was uh, in the 50s after the war. London was kind of like smashed to pieces because of the war, and it was also overcrowded anyway. So what they did was they took a load of villages that were about 20 miles outside of london that kind of circled london so there's maybe about eight or nine or a little not maybe not so not so small as villages but like it's quite small places and they turned them into these new towns they poured huge amounts of money in so in the late 50s they they kind of put in this kind of really weird modernist kind of architecture and they paid young couples to leave london and go and live in these new towns. So there was Hatfield, Welland Garden City. As I say, they circled London, and mine was Hemel Hempstead. Um, and I never realised how amazing the architecture was there. It's all been, it's all, all fell down basically. It was this. Uh, we had like a, we had a circular car park with a huge. It must. I don't know. Was it twenty foot across? We had a huge ball that was orange and yellow and turned round continuously. <laughs> 
<laughs> that was just there. That was like, you know, so it was, it was, um, it was a great place because it was, it wasn't in London. So I had this really kind of safe kind of like countryside was really accessible to me. But at the same time, it was close enough to London that as soon as I wanted to get to London, I could get there. But London was just this incredible place, but it was 20 minutes away. So it was like, you know, until I could get on a train, it, it might as well have been Egypt. But as soon as I got, got that, 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 the ability, you know, allowed to be on the train by my parents, by myself, which is probably about 15, I could go up there. So I had this kind of like, I could dip into this amazing early 70s London, you know, which, which is where it was all really basically that sort of uh the the flowering you know because people talk about the 60s but really the 60s were the 70s certainly in england you know the, the early 70s were the really the 60s where people actually un, sort of started to get the whole hippie thing and the and the crazy anti-establishment thing so i could read like magazines like international times and oz which were kind of underground publications which had kind of like you know anti-government pro-gay pro uh black kind of stuff going on left wing stuff and then i could go up and i'd actually see the people uh mick farron who's just died who was a fantastic writer lived in la but was originally from england um was this amazing guy who was a white guy with a huge afro and i can remember like as a 15 year old kid walking down portobello road and meeting mick farron and mick farron was like you know the guy who wrote these uh, these pieces for International Times and set up the International Times. And eventually was the guy, he wrote a very famous piece for the NME about uh, the coming of punk called uh, The Sinking of the Titanic, just pre-punk. Like he was just like, this is just, you know, why are we listening to Brian fucking Ferry and Pink <laughs> Floyd and Supertramp? Surely something must come along. I've heard about this band called The Sex Pistols. I haven't seen them, but they sound like the right, you know, it was that sort of article. So, it was like uh, just I was just so lucky. So I had to, I kind of like, you know, I read about this kind of utopian Portobello Road hippie squat scene, and then I could go and visit it. And there were loads of in those days there were loads of free gigs up there that I could go and see. So I, I kind of followed. Uh, there was a band called the Pink Fairies who were who were renowned for being drug addled, but also. Uh, kind of RMC Five. They would play free benefits and stuff like that, and and so. I could buy their records and I could go and see them playing for nothing and a kind of like, you know, underneath the flyover that went across Portobello Road, which is now completely gentrified and is a kind of like a probably a, a fashion emporium now. But at that time, it was just an empty sort of hole of concrete and they would set up, Hawkin would set up there and play. And For the people in the States listening to this, uh, you know, we don't grow up with having any knowledge at all about the squat scene. In, uh, right in London, can you describe that a little well, bit? Well, the squat scene was an, it was just fantastic because um, it was just um, there was a law which said if you were caught breaking into a house, that was breaking and entering. But once you were in that house, it was kind of legally yours. Uh, it, you know, you didn't own it, but people couldn't. Th uh, Heavies could come and throw you out if it was like a dodgy landlord. But there was just a huge swathes of empty council houses or houses that had been left because they were slightly fucked up or uh, rich owners who'd gone to America or gone somewhere else and they'd kind of almost forgotten about their property. They didn't care about their property. So um, 
particularly all over West London, you had these things where, um, you know, you could get in and you'd, you'd have a friend. Uh, I can remember uh, we would, you know, you'd have to bypass the meter and actually plug in directly to the electricity supply. So you had really brave friends who knew how to do that. <laughs> I never did that. But, I mean, I can remember really clearly, um, like, tramping through the streets at, like, 4 o'clock in the morning with, like, a, a sort of 40-foot ladder and then extending it 80 foot and then, you know, going up this ladder. And I got about three quarters of the way up and I was like, I can't get up the ladder because the only way we could get into this house was the very top window. They'd board up the bottom windows. But it was just a huge... And there are still an incredible amount of empty buildings, but they've just tightened up the whole law now. But what it meant was that there were streets of squats. There were whole streets of squats in incredibly fancy areas like uh, Maida Vale. Uh, there were which is where people like uh, Chrissy Hind ended up living. It was a kind of rock star sort of place. Um, and yet there would be just around the corner from here, there'd be a whole set of uh, buildings that literally every single building was, was squatted. And so you then get a kind of squatters union. Um, but it was quite amazing. I mean, some, you know, the first places I squatted, I was very lucky. I moved up into with a band that were based in squat culture. So I didn't have to learn it. I was just kind of shown it. It was like, this is where you're sleeping tonight. But, you know, the, uh, I can remember when we've, I first started squatting, there was a bed that literally three or four people shared. And yet the game was to get into that bed early on so that the other three people couldn't get in. But then some, some nights you'd be out having a good time and you'd come back and you'd find someone else had got the bed. So not only were you squatting the house, but you were squatting the frigging bed as well. And I never knew where the bed came from, you know. <laughs> I mean, I ended up in a house which had no... The bath was, uh, we had, the bath was in the adjo adjoining house and we flushed the toilet with a bucket because we never got any running water. We had electricity. It was amazing because I, I just... You know, when you're a teenager, you just think this is the way things are. Um, I mean, there was a, there was an area called Frestonia, which is basically Freston Road, but it, it declared itself uh, as a independent country, and it had like you know a minister of information and a minister of tourism and all these kind of things and a little passport. And we, um, I lived in Frestonia, which now is you know, I mean, we were offered the council offered of those offered us. Our houses at £30,000 when I was probably 20, maybe 19. And, of course, £30,000, they might as well have said, you know, can you give us the moon? Those houses are now worth something, you know, millions. They're worth millions of pounds. So it was it was a absolutely utopian time. It was a, it was like, um, you know, those, those weird kind of intellectual 60s ideals suddenly. That's what I mean about the 70s being really the 60s because actually – you know, you started actually doing it. So we were, we were living, you know, we were living a communal life. You'd, um, God knows where we got the furniture from. I, I still, I, I mean, it was probably quite sexist. I have no idea how the house was cleaned or, or who <laughs> who did the washing up. I can remember putting money into, I was talking to a friend of mine, and we used to put money into a, you know, into a house fund. And now that we'd get like, you know, a huge amount of brown rice and then someone would cook. And we had, you know, we had a coal shed out the back. I mean, we had someone living in the coal shed for like, you know, about half a year. But it was, it, the interesting thing about it was because it was total anarchy. It was real anarchy. So every so often someone would turn up and go, you know, but it's not your house. We're going to live here. And then you'd have to deal with that. You'd either have to be, 
you know, uh, beaten up and have to leave the place, or you'd have to come, you'd have to sort of sit down and reason with the guy or come up with some other people that were physically larger than he was or the group of people that, that they were. I can remember very clearly we had a, um, one of the women in our, uh, in our house was doing a, um, a hostess thing. You know, where you kind of like, you know, you paid huge amounts of money to sit with this woman and, and drink bad champagne. And then, you know, what she then did with you afterwards was up to her to negotiate. If she felt like, you know, like perhaps going to a room with you, that would be great. And she came home with this American guy and he was great. He lived in a house for like about, I don't know, for about two or three months. And he was just so, he was just so, it was like having this completely alien person. He was like, <laughs> what? are you guys doing here? No, you don't own the goddamn house. And it was really, it was really funny. It was a real total clash of cultures. It was suddenly, because you know, we're in our little hermetically sealed vacuum. It seemed like a totally, of, it was just what we did. You know, there was, there was dull money. So you were getting like 30 quid a week from, the, from the social security. Uh, you're signing on. You, uh, we were in a band. So you could then, you know, you knew you signed on on a Friday. So you could, or you signed on on a Thursday morning. So you could go and, you could go and tour for the rest of the week, albeit free gigs, but you could go and tour for the rest of the week. As long as you got back on Thursday morning, you know, I can remember very clearly being in the north of London, uh, in the north of England. And like, you know, the, the guitarist having to hitch back to London, whatever it is, the, the three or 400 miles to London. And that like, you know, sign on and get back in order to do the next gig, you know, we'd have said, all right, well, we won't be able to do anything until you get back, but we're not going back because we all signed on two days earlier. So it was all kind of, it was kind of quite a cool thing. I was still living in a squat when I did the Smiths, when I met the Smiths. Yeah, well, here and now were the people that, you know, I, I was at university and I was trying to do, um, I was trying to be a lawyer because I was going to change the world from inside. I was going to go inside and, covertly take over everything and after a year of doing that i um i realized that i just you know the whole of university seemed to me people telling me that university was pointless it seemed like the, the lecturers main thing was they spent the first two or three fucking lectures saying what we're doing here is pointless i remember them saying that you know lawyers were they had no, there was no need for lawyers unless because people, unless people could if, if people could talk to each other there'd be no need for lawyers and they said there was, you know, in the Eskimos, they, it was like they had a thing where the person who told the best story was the one who 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 won in the in the kind of legal fight. It wasn't anything to do with right and wrong. It was just like someone who played the most, said the most. And I was like, yeah, keep telling me this stuff that's saying that what I do is rubbish. You know, what I'm trying to do is absolutely pointless. <clears throat> and I kind of thought that anyway. And I'd, I'd, I'd lucky enough, uh, I'd hooked him with a band called Gong, and. They were on Virgin Records and they had all the money that Tubular Bells had been a massive record for Richard Branson and Virgin Records. It sold zillions of copies. So Virgin Records had this huge amount of money and they then went out trying to find the next Mike Oldfield, who was the guy who'd done Tubular Bells. And Gong's one of the groups they picked up. I followed them around. And there was another bunch of guys who kind of, who were kind of a kind of dirty, scuffed, pretty deranged version of Gong. They were all Gong fans. And this was the Here and Now band. And, and I'd, I'd kind of dipped my toe into the music business. And I was actually working at Virgin Records for this guy called Steve Hillage, who'd been a guitarist in uh, Gong and, and who, was, who, was, who kind of ended up as a kind of top 10 kind of rock artist in England. And um, we went and saw this band. In, in, there were lots of free festivals in those days. 
right? So free festivals are not in a way that we understand festivals at all now because there weren't any, there wasn't, I keep coming back to this word anarchy, but there wasn't any organisers and there wasn't any shops and there weren't any toilets and there wasn't, you know, what, it was that, you know, it was that, sounds weird now, but what, what you got was what you brought with you. Here and now, in that situation, we're about the most together band going. So there would be a situation where you'd go to a, some land somewhere and people would have buses and tents and stuff and they'd have cooking stuff. And we had, a, we had, we had a, here and now had a bus and we'd set up and it might be like a week before anything happened, in, you know, that before anybody, anybody played music. And it would be like kind of like on Friday we're going to play, you know. <laughs> it's going to be Friday, you know, so, you know, hang around or tell, you know, get some more people down on Friday. Cause we'd like the, you know, the, the guitarist is getting back from signing on the doll then, you know, and, um, but I'd worked in the music business a little bit. So I, I, I was kind of been organized and I'd met here and now, and they'd seemed like a complete mess. This guy, Steve Hillish had tried to play with them in a little festival called Megan fair in Wales. And we'd gone down and we were playing like the town halls of, of uh, of England and we were kind of, as I say we were top 10 kind of things but he was also he he was in those hippie roots so we went back and I remember them playing they never seemed to ever be in the same key as each other Steve was constantly trying to find the key <laughs> the band were playing in so they seemed like a real mess but then but then I I was a callow youth and it became very clear that I wasn't a very good guitar tech um and I kind of got thrown out of the whole Steve Hillage thing which is which is probably fantastic very great news for me went off to university tried to do all this didn't really work out and then i, I somehow i went to a festival but it, you know like i call it a festival it was a gathering of like maybe three or four hundred people in a field somewhere and here and now we're there again and um <clears throat> i think i just got bored because they would they, they had the equipment in the van and there was a stage and there was a generator and there was a PA, but they just didn't seem to want to actually get around to doing the gig. So I kind of, I think I basically got the drums out, set them up, got the bass quit, got all the equipment and set it out. And then sort of said like, guys, you know, there's a kind of PA over here, which we could, you know. So it, it was weird because in the context of Steve Hillage, I was a complete untogether mess. But in the context of the Here and Now band, I was like this incredibly organised together guy, <laughs> practically carrying these very, very stoned people on stage. You know, everyone was tripping and I was tripping. And um, it was, you know, we're waiting for the full moon to play on the full moon. So so they, you know, we lived we lived, we, we lived in various squats in this area of, of London, West London called Frestonia. Um, we played uh, spontaneous jams, which had kind of little key things uh that we'd come back and forth to and, and we were just we played for free you know and we got paid in drugs and food really by people who wanted us to continue now i can remember you know we eventually ended up doing through me I, I mean i kind of for my sins i kind of dragged here and now out of the fields and into the venues uh because i you know in those days uh the student the universities student unions wanted to entertain their their students and so i could say to them we've got a bus we had a pa by then we've got a band and we'll come and play for nothing in your university um if you'll let us we played naked yeah because i mean i 
the, the only reason we played naked was because other people were naked as well. I mean, there was a lot of naked, there were <laughs> far too many naked men in those things. <laughs> but yeah, we would play. It was actually in, uh, we, we, played State, we played Stonehenge every year. And there were kind of lots of, you know, we'd, we'd play at the, at the solstice point and people would argue that we shouldn't be playing music at the solstice point because it was all about the, the, the stones. Because in those days you could walk straight to the stones. The stones are now surrounded by a fence and you have to pay to get in. Whereas, um, you know, it seems insane now. We would literally go to a field opposite Stonehenge, set up a festival, and we did it every year and they never stopped us. I mean, obviously, they, you know, it probably started <laughs> in 75, 74 and it went on to like certainly went on to eighty four until a very famous thing called the Battle of the Battle of the Beanfield, where they the police cordoned off all the buses and just smashed the fuck out of them. But yeah, we we you know naked nakedness was definitely. I mean, it was it, it was one of those things where, as I say, there was no there were no police, there were no stewards. Um, so really. If you wanted to take your clothes off, no one was stopping you. And it just so happened that everyone else, it's great. It's, I tell you what, it's really easy to be naked and play the fucking guitar because the guitar is right in front of all that bit, <laughs> all those bits that you really are the most embarrassing bits. But yeah, I, I was, I was definitely, I was that naked roadie. And there is, you know, there's a here and now album where I'm uh, the first here and now album where the, the label is a, a photograph of me naked. Uh, and, and, and where the, and where the, the, where the cock should be, that of course the spindle goes through. So I had this enormous, and back in the day of dance sets, I had this enormous kind of hard on of steel that was like four inches of steel coming <laughs> directly out. So Manchester was a massive town for us, and it had two or three, it had a polytechnic, it had a university, and it had something else as well. So we could play three different venues. And uh, unbeknownst to me, um, there was a great. The, the, the two the, the two Smiths connections are that there was a great, very cheap vegetarian food cooperative called On the Eighth Day. And that was put together by Joe Moss, who was the manager, who became the manager of the Smiths and basically created, helped create the Smiths, was the key figure along with Johnny Marr and Morrissey in making the Smiths. And secondly, Andy, I thought it was Andy and Johnny, but recently uh, there's been a new biography of the Smiths come out and he, and the guy who wrote it maintains it was just Andy. Andy came, Andy was a bit of a spacer, and Andy came and saw Here and Now and saw, you know, the thing about Here and Now was, I keep using this word anarchy, but it was complete anarchy because we ran the show. It was our PA. There was no security, in the, even in the venues, right? And um, I developed a thing where I had a, because I, you know, I became very clear that I couldn't sing or play the guitar. But I really did like people looking at me and listening to me. So I had a microphone. There's a way you can communicate through the monitor speakers on stage. And the audience can't hear you, but the band can hear what you're saying. But I decided that that was really boring. So I talked through the monitors, but I'd also talk through the PA. So I'd, I'd be like, there'd be, you know, a deranged drongo on stage. And I would say... From the mixing desk, I'm sorry, you're a deranged freaking drongo. You know, at Stonehenge, you've got a lot of mad people. You're a deranged drongo. Can you please get off the stage so someone who actually knows how to play an instrument can get on stage, you know? <laughs> or, you know, are you actually, or, you know, the, the, the incredible, like, you know, uh, setting up of a, of a band that are tripping, you know? Because yeah. you are literally like, okay, we've been trying to get you to play music for an hour now. Would you like to start playing? And so that happened at... um 
at these gigs in Manchester, I'd be, you know, uh, probably having some sort of banter with the drummer who was the key guy for me, Keith Keith. And I'd be like, you know, he'd be sort of saying things like, can you put some echo on the bass drum? And I'd be like, do you really mean you want me to put echo on the bass drum? Because that <laughs> sounds like the maddest thing that anyone's ever But of course, everyone would be, would be privy to this conversation. And I wore, uh, you know, I had a red, green and gold kind of waistcoat, sort of wizard's waistcoat. Um, so I was a pretty, and I had, a, I had the weirdest hairstyle in the world. I, I had this kind of like pineapple, pineapple hairstyle, which, uh, which must catch on one day, uh, which my girlfriend had given me. So I had, this, I had long hair, but then a kind of weird kind of thing that came out the top of my head. And I was shouting at people on, on stage. And so Andy came back. Having seen, have been tripping, having seen us, I've just seen this really mad guy, you know, who's just kind of shouting at the bands. <laughs> it was really weird, you know. I don't know if it was good or bad, but it was really weird. So, the, so once I was brought up by the, I suspect Scott Peering, wonderful now dead man, who um, was the publicist at Rough Trade, mentioned that that the Smiths really needed a sound man, and he already knew who I was. And Johnny already knew who I was. Morrissey already knew who I was because of the fall, because through convoluted story, but through the Here and Now band, um, you know, we were we were working in 76. So I was in West London in 76. So not only did I have the end of the hippie thing, I was right at the very, very beginning of the punk thing. So um, me and, again, me and Keith Kiff, the drummer, like really hooked in. Oh God, this is incredible. This is an unbelievable thing. So, you know, uh, Mark Perry, who very famously was a fanzine writer. Called, he wrote something called Sniffing Glue, which is the punk fanzine. And, and he had a record label with Miles Copeland. Don't ask about that. And, um, and they were putting out these nascent punk things and he just played me a, um, a single by the fall. We said, we're going to put this out in about six months time. And, and it, it was one of those great things because I just said, can I have their phone number? And they said, yeah, of course you can have the phone number. Gave me the phone number and I phoned them and said, we're a band, we're a hippie band, but we've got a PA and do you want to come and play with us? And of course they did want to play because they'd only been playing little tiny pubs in Manchester. So they've got to play around the country. We never paid them any money, uh, but they, they dug the whole scene and, th and that just led to me producing the second Fall album. So, so Morrissey was obviously hooked into that side of things. And in fact, Johnny was a big Fall fan as well. But only, and he was also very big into Mark Perry's band, which I, I never knew until recently. Alternative TV. So they're kind of an alternative TV were the punk band that we toured with most. Probably the Fool and Alternative TV were the two. We picked up different punk. We played with the Mekons and people like that. But uh, but they would be one or you know they'd be two or three gigs with them. But wherever the Fool and and, and ATV, we did whole tours. Um, so yeah, there I was suddenly set up. You know, the Smiths knew who I was and. Um, and I guess it was pretty lucky because, you know, they were so, everything they did was so organized and planned. And, uh, uh, you know, Johnny and Morrissey set out with a plan. Um, and, and incredibly, I was part of that plan, you know, although, albeit I think Rough Trade tried to install me as their kind of London guy. I think record companies often do that. They try and put in their guy. Um, but of course, that was a complete failure because I just became a Smiths guy. I wasn't a rough trade guy at all. Do you remember when you first met uh, Morrissey and Johnny Marr? Yeah, yeah, it was insane. It was insane because uh, you know they—they they, it was the fifth gig. It was um, 
University of London Union. There were, they were supporting the Sisters of Mercy. It was their fifth gig. Um, there were about 30 people in the hall. But they were, you know, the the main writer for Sounds, which is a national newspaper, a national music paper. One of the main writers for the NME, John Walters, who was the guy who booked the John Peel show, which is like, you know, vitally important to anyone who wanted to make it on the indie, slightly underground. So it was all these movers and shakers that, that, that this again, this character called Scott Peering, who was publicist for Rough Trade, had managed to get. And he pulled me along and... um you know, it was quite clear they needed a sound man. I mean, the guy had echo on, on, on he was echoing Morris's voice. So I was like, what, the, what is this? And so I went backstage and I met them and it was just, you know, they Scott said to meet them and they were just astonishing. They were like, they all, they were dressed in this way that I'd never seen, you know, and already, I mean, already it was, it was, it was like, it was like the Hollies is the closest I could. I had no idea what they were doing. You know, it was I was I was from a uh, the punk thing obviously had gone through, and I understood punk and I understood post punk. Um, uh, you know, the whole Gang of Four thing. Um, but they were. It was like, how was how was that one guy? Was it the guitar? Why was what did it sound like with four guitars? And you know, was it was it the guitar playing or the bass playing? What was who was playing the melody riff there? What, what you know, what was you know? It seemed very. Also, Morrissey was very dark. Those initial songs, you know, um, "Hand in Glove," "Suffer Little Children," all the you know, the Moore's Murderer kind of stuff. It was all very dark um, and, and slightly seedy. Um, so I was kind of amazed. I couldn't really put my hand on what was going on. And then I went backstage to meet the guys, you know, and they had the bit, they had their, their, their collars done up and they had these clothes on and they had these hairstyles, which I didn't, you know, at the time I didn't realize I, I, I you know, very quickly I got my hair cut by, by the same guy. They had that, you know, the hairdresser, the, the hairdresser had done all their hair. And, the, and they'd thought about the clothes, but they had beads around their necks. And they were talking in a way that I could not understand. They were talking, they were saying things that I did not know what they were talking about. And, and you know, and years later, Johnny was saying it wasn't that, you, know, it, it, you know, it wasn't the accents or anything. It was the fact that they'd kind of got a whole new, like, you know, these words like handsome and charming, which you, didn't, you hadn't heard. They were like Victorian words, you know, that Dickens had um and so they were talking and they were laughing and and they looked so they looked like a band and they were like uh you know they they ended each other's sentences and it was amazing and incredible and i was just utterly bemused because i've gone backstage the people taking drugs to people be you know uh trying to pull girls or uh people who were just horribly nasty and didn't want you there in the first place they were welcoming and they were just very peculiar. I'd never seen it because I, you know, I was coming, you've got to remember, I was coming from this squat culture. I wasn't coming from a, a, anything to do with pop, although I always admired pop and I always loved pop. Um, so it was pretty astonishing, but very, very, uh, very strange. And Joe Moss, again, this guy who'd, who'd run the vegetarian restaurant in Manchester was, was, was there as the benign kind of father figure Again, I was like, this guy's a manager. 
He just seems to be, he seems to just love you all, you know, <laughs> be doting on you. He's not trying to, you know, he wasn't like, what are you doing here? What the goddamn fuck? Get the motherfucking, you know. He was just like happy. They were all so incredibly happy. I mean, they must have known even at that point. It's that weird thing. Isn't it? I suppose a lot of bands go through that stage where they think we are going to make it and they have that golden glow and then it just fucking evaporates. You know, I've, there's been a million bands that I thought were going to make it that didn't make it, and I've seen that. But they had that golden glow, and it never left. It never left. It just kept growing. It was just like, you know, we're going to be great, and it's going to be amazing. We are amazing, and it's going to be amazing. And it just got more and more amazing. It was a kind of really, you know, to go from like 20 people in a room to within a year you know, people crawling up fucking 30-foot, 40-foot walls to try and get, you know, screaming, hundreds of screaming people, meaning you can't leave, uh, you know, the building and fucking people grabbing at your hair and your clothes. So, you know, they had this dream and it, it, it happened. And, you know, I was just so lucky to be dragged along in the slipstream of that. But it was, they had all that in that, on that day, they thought they'd, you know, they were supporting the Sisters of Mercy and they thought they were great and they thought they were better than the Sisters of Mercy and they were, you know. I remember you telling me something about uh, Johnny Marr would get really nervous before playing, he would throw up. Uh, That's right, yeah. Johnny, I mean, the thing is, Johnny, you know, he was so... His drive was so key to the Smiths, you know, obviously. Without Morrissey, they couldn't have had it. Without Johnny, they couldn't. Johnny couldn't have done it without Morrissey. Morrissey couldn't have done it without Johnny. But the thing was, it got big so quickly and and Joe Moss bailed out so quickly. The manager bailed out probably by Christmas 84. He'd gone, you know. So I'd met him as the manager and then he'd, he'd, he'd disappeared. Maybe even earlier than that. The first time we went to America, he didn't come to America with us. And that was it. So Johnny had to do everything. And, you know, he's, you know, he had to really kind of organize everyone, write the songs, you know, hire the freaking van, you know. Uh, I can remember I was in Japan with the Frank Chickens and the Smiths were about to start an American tour in Chicago. And I phoned up Rough Trade and said, this is how crazy it was in those days. I said, you know, where I need a ticket to get from Tokyo to Chicago because the tour starts in a week's time. And they were like, well, there isn't a ticket. Very, very famously, Mike Hink, who was the agent for Rough Trade, said, what, the, what, what ticket? What do you mean? There's no ticket, you know. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I had to phone up Johnny and say, Johnny, they're saying there's no ticket. You know, so Johnny, the freaking guitarist, then has to get the ticket for me to get me to Chicago, you know, which is insane. So, you know, I bow down to him. But he was having to make these incredible decisions. And it wasn't until we got to America that it got really crazy because you can do it in England. It's kind of small, you know, you're doing little tiny little trips between, as you know, between gigs and the gigs aren't that big. And then suddenly... We were in America and, you know, stage invasions. When you've got 10,000 people in a gig, a stage invasion is pretty fucking scary. 
You know, it's not like there's a thousand people in the gig and you're going to have a stage invasion. There's like 50 people on stage. I mean, a little dance with you. It's like mad, crazy people. And of course, you know, the jocks, the jocks, the jocks came out. And we didn't, you know, we had a pretty, uh, we had a pretty kind of like outsider audience in England. But when we came to America, we had all these fucking big, tough fucking guys, you know. So it was fairly scary. And Johnny was having to make artistic personal decisions so it was all it was almost like you know so often the, the lead singer gets all of that but Morrissey seemed to sidestep that. I'm sure he was under pressure as well but Johnny was under an incredible amount of pressure so he was just getting to the stage where you know it was all too much he cared too much and he's a very sharp guy he's onto everything johnny you can see it in what he's doing now you see interviews with him now he's a sharp and snappy guy but there's a point in which that not being able to let go which i think morrissey could do a little bit more i think morrissey was so within his own world that he could go off into that whereas johnny had to kind of like his thing had to be interceding with the real world at all times because otherwise he wouldn't get to what he wanted to do it wouldn't happen so i think that just in the end yeah he was he was kind of like a he was a bit of a nervous wreck you know he wasn't and he wasn't you know he wasn't like a big built guy you know he was like a little frail kind of i mean you beautiful mark bolan-esque kind of dude you know but i think the stress of it all the emotional the physical you know because we would you know we would the gig stopped and we would go out and have a good time, you know, and we probably wouldn't stop having a good time till six or seven in the morning, you know, and it was, a, it was, uh, you do that. I couldn't do that now. And you do, you know, you don't realize how it's, how, how it's burning you out. So I think that he was getting burnt out and that the rest of them could sleep through it, but he would have to make decisions all the way through the day about interviews and mixes. Remember very clearly that we, the insanity of what was going on. We very late on we had um, a wardrobe mistress, and then somehow she became manager for a while. And then I can remember very clearly um, we we're in the dressing room, and I guess we should have been we should have been on, and we weren't on. We weren't. You know, we were in the dressing room. We should have been on stage. And we weren't. And this quite quite small woman. Uh, was sort of going like doing the managerial thing. You've really got to, you know, you've got to kind of get on stage. And I can remember very clearly Morrissey kind of catching the eye of our the security guard Jim Connolly, um, who who became our security guard for the rest of the rest of the time that Smith happened, and sort of kind of I don't some unsaid thing, but Jim Connolly kind of quite calmly walked over. And while this woman was still speaking, picked her up and carried her out of the dressing room. <laughs> it was just like, I was like, what? Fantastic, you know. <laughs> was it Morrissey a, a pleasant guy to be around? Morrissey with? was fantastic. Yeah, Morrissey was a lovely guy. And it was all, it's that thing, isn't it, where, um, you know, I, I've, you know, I work with Marky e. Smith and I've, and, uh, to this day, I still work with Mark, and and and, and I work with Morrissey. And people think that Mark is this angry, bile-ridden monster, and that Morrissey is in floods of tears the entire time. Morrissey was just like the most jovial, funny, happy guy to be around. You know, he really was. He was he was fun. Um, I was closer to his age than the the rest of the band were, so in a way, we could kind of almost 
have a little bit of that, like, look at those crazy young kids kind of thing, you know. <laughs> so it was quite, it was lovely. It was, it was, you know, I never felt uncomfortable with Morrissey until, you know, they did this thing where they broke up in my studio and that was the tragic tragedy of my, of my life in some respects. Um, and that was, I felt uncomfortable then. But, you know, Morrissey was not, Morrissey was a funny, get on with it, have a nice time, oh, I've got a great new idea thing kind of guy you know he was not they they all were there was nobody moping can you tell me about them breaking up in your studio well it just you know it, it's it was just uh you know it was that classic thing where you know i i i've been producing records since the sort of late 70s so i had and i had had a recording studio um before i met the before i met the smiths and so obviously I had a theory about how the Smiths record should sound. And I produced, you know, because I did the live stuff and I thought, this is what it should sound like. And, and, and it never sounded the way I expected it to sound. Um, and then I had my chance, you know, like this is it. And I had this, I had a recording studio um, where I, I, I lived with, um, you know, I, I lived in that house next to the studio. So it was a studio I know really well and it was great. And, uh, you know, unbeknownst to me, you know, it was all falling to pieces. So it was just, you know, I, I, I was like, what the fuck is, you know, what is wrong? Have I, what have I done? You know, what terrible thing have I done that made, has made this happen? Then, but, but it was actually, you know, that was when I saw Morrissey Miserable. And I've, I've seen Morrissey Miserable since then as well. Um, and everyone was unhappy. The dream was, just, you know, the dream that that vision that had worked so well for five years was just not working anymore um and um you know everyone was exhausted and it was just horrible it was it was it wasn't pleasant it wasn't pleasant at all was there shouting and there was uh there was uh, you know uh, there, there, there was very clearly a moment where um you know i can remember feeling threatened by morrissey he seemed a little bit you know kind of like he wasn't actually saying i'm gonna punch your fucking mouth in but it was kind of like scary you know he was kind of looming over me and i can remember very clearly um one moment where you know morrissey was saying let's go and do the fucking song let's do the song and and johnny just standing there going what song what we haven't got a song what what are you talking about there isn't a song <laughs> you know and that was you know, that, that had never happened. Yeah. It had never happened. And of course, it happened in my studio. But yeah, the, the, I mean, the only kind of redeeming thing for that was for me to realise it was, it was something that I now realise it was something that had happened before they came to the studio. And it was kind of like the denouement, you know, forever and a day, that'll be, you know, I'll be the guy who's back. Smith broke up in my studio. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, what, you know, at the time I thought it was something I'd done and I, I'm so pleased now to realise it was just the end of a very long series of things. That, you know. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in and I'd like to thank Grant for meeting up with me at a hotel room here in Nashville, Tennessee. And part two will be next week and we'll talk more about Billy Bragg and Mermaid Avenue. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, leave a comment, 
Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.